We celebrate today that there are countless ways uh, that God can make us beautiful uh, and wonderful. And so I bring up here Britt Hood uh, coming to life from the video with us. And uh, we want you to just see all the ways that God makes not only our kids, uh, but all the beautiful ways God makes the people who lead and teach and love our kids. So we want to pray over Britt and, and ask for extra grace for her and her work here at Southbrook. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for that moment when you create, when you make us, when you dream of who we can be. We thank you for each of the kids we saw featured and for the way that you crafted them and dreamed of them and the way you built them with love. And we thank you for Brit and for the way that you designed her heart to notice what not everybody notices. We pray that you continue to give her the strength and wisdom and compassion and mercy, the patience and the, all the good things that come when the Spirit is living inside us. God, we pray that she would continue to show those through her work here. God, teach us as a church through these kids and through her. Help us to be welcoming and an accessible place. Help us to grow and to learn and to keep on making the table as wide as we can. God, help us to see your kingdom at work in all of your kids and for them to help us all get there together. God, I pray even today that you bless Britt as she goes and we thank you for her teaching us and showing us something good. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you. Just so you know, yeah, give her a hand. Uh, one thing, I think Britt will be, will you be in the lobby or you'll be around? There will be cards and stuff. If, if your family is affected by needing some extra care back in uh, South for Kids, uh, you can go to the info counter and let them know. Or if that stirred your heart to help us get better at that and to serve this population, uh, then we would encourage you to stop at the info desk uh, and tell them who you are and, 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 and join us in that good work. I should tell you as we get started uh, this morning that we're about uh, to get weird. We're going to get weird. Uh, I'll already tell you that we have created a very technical service where there's lots of lighting and sound cues. And uh, we have already experienced a lot of surprises this morning uh, with that camera's gone, apparently, which we, probably, we didn't plan on that camera not being on right now. Um, but just lots of those little things, which is what happens when you plan to do something weird. And uh, we're just going to ask for your attention in a, in a maybe different way this morning because there's so many words that we could use to talk about what it means to be human. But our hope is that maybe we would show rather than just tell today and that we could maybe use fewer words. I actually want to argue that I, I think there's maybe just one word that captures so much of what it means to be human. And it's a word that I'm pretty sure is a real word. It showed up in Merriam-Webster, but not Microsoft Word, did not recognize it. But I trust Merriam-Webster more than I trust Microsoft Word. And so uh, it, it showed up as a real word, and it's the word withness. And it, it just means what it sounds, the, the state of being with, withness. We have a lot of other words we might use in place of it, words like presence or community or company. There's a lot of other words we use. But I thought maybe if we use a new word, we would see this uh, in a brand new way. And 
I just want to argue that I think that one of the ways it, it means to be a person is just to be with each other and to be with God. And witness became this filter that I started looking at scripture through. Like, like maybe that instead of, of reading the Bible to always go learning something or figuring out what to do or, or figuring out what everybody else is getting wrong, I would go to scripture and I would try to read it with the people who are in it. And I would try to just sit with them and I would wonder like what it felt like to be in the moments that they were in, right? Like I said, there's the things that we know from the story and then there's all this other stuff that's, that's rich that we don't always know. We have to just kind of imagine. I wonder if imagining it gets it to feel more real to us. And then maybe if we read it that way, we would start to see that if God is with all these wild human stories, maybe God is also with us. So we're just going to look and practice together withness. Because of all the things that might be happening when we get together in a space like this, I think one of the most important things might be for us to just be with each other. We're going to start with sitting with Eve's story. And we go to her story a lot when we're trying to figure out what it means to be human. We go to her to figure out what went wrong. We go to her and Adam and we wonder why they fell for that lie and why they ate that fruit and what effects that has for all of humanity. But I want us to talk about another part of Eve's story, which is that Eve is actually the first person to have violence happen in her family. Maybe you know this part of her story that that her son Cain kills her son Abel. And what we don't know, we don't know if they buried Abel, but I want us to just imagine for a minute that they did and to sit in the dirt with Eve. And I wonder if maybe she held that dirt for a while before she threw it on that very first grave. And maybe as she held it, she thought about how different a first is from a last. Like there was the first time that she saw the garden. And then there was the way it looked on her last step out. And there was the first look into her son's eyes. And there was the last look as they covered him. It's like all she is is a beginning and an end. She's counted among the first humans to see rain fall and to see trees rise. Maybe she's even the first one to dip her toes into the water and see if it would hold her for the very first time. She is the first human to believe the lie, all you are is what you are not. And she is the first of us who, when we started to feel like we were falling, didn't want to fall alone. And she is the first to have the voice of God that was once whispering so close in her ear become just a distant voice in the clouds. And she's the first to have the whole wide world in front of her become just an old dream behind her. And she's the first human to see her flesh as something she's supposed to hide. She is the first body to know a man, to make a man, to teach a man to walk. 
and then to watch the man walk away. And she is the first to bury a man whose eyes looked like her own. She is the first in a body to know what that voice in the cloud knows about kids and the appetite of your children, which is that you can never take them away. And it is the first and the last truth that she holds, that you can only be the mother of life if you are also ready to be the mother of all death. She's the first human to know that all we gain in this world is what we're ready to lose, and that all of it somehow is still love. And of course, Eve's story is just the beginning of loss. It's not too far into this human story that God gets so sick and tired of humans that he decides to wipe the chalkboard clean and start all over. And many of us know this part of the story of Noah, right? That, that God decides to, to strike humans, but to save just Noah and his family by helping them build a boat while God floods the earth. And Noah acts in faith at a time when humans are losing themselves and they're acting more like animals than people who carry the image of God. But I want us to spend some, some time with another part of Noah's story because there's a story that every time we as a church talk about Noah's story, we always try to emphasize the fact that it makes for a strange child's nursery. Uh, one, because of, you know, all that death and destruction, but also because there's a part of Noah's story where he ends up drinking too much. We don't, we don't know exactly how, how he does it. Maybe I imagine that they've planted brand new vineyards to replace all those vineyards that were lost. But he ends up drunk and passed out, half naked. And, and he ends up kind of vulnerable so that the whole world can see him. And of course, at this time, the whole world is just his kids. But that is embarrassment enough, right? To be drunk and passed out and half naked in front of his own family. And it is, it's a strange story because if you were going to make up a story about a bunch of folk heroes who do amazing things, you would not include the stories of their morning afters. But Noah's story survives. And I wonder if we just kind of sit with this moment when Noah drinks too much, if we might understand our own human selves a little better. I wonder, I bet, I think he swore that that first drink was just quality control. Right, that he had, he had to make sure that these new waterlogged vines would still have some of that old world flavor. Enough, he just says, I'll just drink enough just to loosen my too tight bones. He sips slowly, he walks slower, and there's this fresh sweetness to the wine. It doesn't even have a name yet. He thinks, I'm going to have to come up with that too. He pours the next drink and the one after that to remember. The first drinks are always to remember, and, and of course the last drinks are always to forget. And he thinks every time of a different old love with every sip. We forget that Noah loses his entire world. And he thinks of, of the soil that he used to know with his young feet. Maybe he thought about the smell of the trees that he used to build his first home. And he wonders, how did these trees that I used to make my home, how could they build this boat that took me so very far away? And he looks down to see that He's accidentally already poured another. 
He closes his eyes and he hears the voice. He remembers it calling out to him patterns and measurements. There's phantom sounds in his ears. It's an invite and a sentence and the voice swears that this is a world where life floods death even if it feels the other way around. And the only thing he thinks that he can know for sure is this cup and, and it's empty. Maybe just one more, he calculates. And with each drink, it's just to wipe away this strange new world like the rain wiped away the one before. He tries to remember their names. He loses all these faces and names that he knew, even the wicked becomes the familiar. And now, maybe by grace or by drink, they're just a blur to him. To trial and error, he raises his glass. He feels the chill of that next drink. It wets his lips, his throat, his heart, wherever his soul is. He thinks, I'll just test my legs, I'm probably fine. And he stumbles falls to the ground and considers himself. Why would God rescue this? For all the stories that we know so well, there are the people who are in the, the shadows of those stories. You maybe know the story of Moses. After all, he, he stars in a 10-hour-long movie that used to play every Easter. He even got to be in an animated movie that features the voices of Mariah Carey and Whitney Houston together at last, and that's a pretty big deal. Maybe you know the basics of Moses' story, how he ends up along with his fellow Hebrews as a slave in Egypt how he lives through all these plagues that fall from the sky, how he's hanging out with his brother Aaron one day and they take a stick and it turns into a snake uh, just to show them what God can do. Maybe you know that he ends up leading his people out of slavery. He frees them, that he's a part of this moment when the Red Sea becomes a road. Maybe you know that he's the reason we have 10 commandments and that he helped his people find a way through the desert. But what we don't talk about very much is his mom. Because there is a moment when his mother, we don't even know her name, but her name is Jochebed. Uh, there's a moment when Jochebed has to make a decision. She can keep her son Moses with her where he will almost certainly die. Or she can surrender him and put him into the river and hope that there's some other better life ahead of him. But maybe if we sat with her story, we would remember her name a little better. Imagine if you could a story like this. Because according to the math of the king, the world had enough of one kind of person. Enough to say, if you were born with this kind of blood, and if you were born with this kind of skin and the eyes of this kind of mother and the smile of this kind of father, if you were born on this side of the river, then somebody might as well just throw you in. But when she had made that kind of a person, and held and cradled that kind of a person and nursed that kind of a person and called good that kind of a person she knew she had to hide and save that kind of a person. 
if she could love him for enough days, if she could whisper enough words to just bury the truth under his skin and set his heart to the beat of hers, maybe the river would not sink him, but it would carry him, she thinks. She can't see yet. She doesn't know that her son is going to be in the movies. She doesn't know that angels will rise from the fire, that serpents will strike out from the staff, plagues are going to fall from the sky. She doesn't know that salvation is going to come to her kind. She does not know that a king can fall and a sea can rise and become a road for weary and battered feet. All she knows is the wrenching, how that water feels like poison, and how she's going to spend the rest of her days shackled, to the mother that she imagined she would get to be. One of my favorite group of people to sit with in recent years has been the people featured in the story of Ruth. Ruth is married to a man who dies young in their marriage, and his brother dies early too, and she's left beside her mother-in-law, who's also lost her husband. We don't really know what's happened to all these men, but the fact that they all died, it seems like maybe they died in a battle, or maybe they died at sea. And when I read Ruth's story and Naomi's story, it sounds to me like they have survived a shipwreck. Because they do what you do if you survived a shipwreck. They hold on to whatever they can in a time of grief and loss. Ruth is famous for making a big, giant promise. She makes the kind of promise that we make on deathbeds and on wedding days and in baptismals. And I, I want to just sit with Ruth for a while because if you know Ruth's story, what ends up happening is she, she keeps her promise for as long as she can, but Naomi helps her to see uh, that God could work in a new way. She could find a new love. She could build a new life. And all she has to do is, is break this, this small promise. If, scratch that, when those ships break, the only way that your body knows to stay above the water is just to hold on to any spare piece of what used to be whole. As if that holding could stop now what it couldn't stop before. As if the next wave crash could be kept out to sea. As if, if your hands would just grip a little tighter, you would never have to dig another grave. She forgets. She knows. Hearts stop. Eyes close and ships sink. She forgets, she knows, we are made to fall apart. And we are made by what we make of that. Somewhere she knows, but she forgets. And so she makes this promise that she will go wherever the other goes. 
She'll stay wherever the other stays. She'll love whoever the other loves. She'll pray to whomever the other prays. She'll die even however the other dies. She'll stay right behind her, even if it means going into the dark ocean tides. This is what you try when you think there is no such thing as a safe distance. But somewhere she knows, and maybe we all know, that the best promise we could ever make is to let go to stay next to each other. Of course, uh, one of the beautiful things about the new story that God writes with Ruth is that Ruth and her new family end up in the lineage of Jesus uh, because of the way love surprises her. And uh, we could spend so many time, so much time with all these stories and and sit with them and experience the witness. The Hebrew scriptures of the Old Testament are are filled with so many stories of of both weakness and strength in humans. And and I wish we had time to go through them all. I wish we could talk about what it means to be a daughter to Rahab. I wish that we could talk about what it means to be sons and brothers to Esau and Jacob. I wish we could sit with Ezekiel and and see dry bones come to life. I really wish we could had time to sit with Elijah because Elijah has this big, beautiful victory moment. And then the next day, he's sitting by himself trying to figure out if life is worth living anymore. And I, I wish we could see all these ways. And, and I want us to just remember in these stories in the Old Testament, God is very often just this, this voice from a distance. He's, he's the spirit in the clouds. He's a presence in the shadows. But as we keep going in the story, we see that God decides to be with humans in a very new way. God in the flesh. God at the table. And in the story we're going to look at here in a minute, God staying in the guest bedroom. A God in the form of Jesus is very often staying at the home of his friend Lazarus and his sisters Mary and Martha. And there's all these stories where they have dinner parties and they have all these gatherings where people get together at the home of Lazarus and his sisters and and Jesus teaches them things. And we have all these stories where Lazarus is present, he's there, but we don't know anything about him. So we have to just kind of imagine what kind of guy he is. And so I wonder if he's that guy who's also at the party. You know, and maybe he keeps his cards close to his hands, right? He doesn't show them to everybody. Maybe he's a quieter guy. Because he doesn't really have a presence in any of these stories until the day that he dies. And, and what I wonder about him, because we don't know, like, why Lazarus dies so suddenly. And what I wonder is if he, he feels it the way so many people do before they die. Even before the diagnosis, they seem to know something's coming. So what I wonder is if Lazarus knew for a while, if he sat through a whole dinner party and he kept that hand close. I wonder, even with Jesus on the scene, what to make of this story of Lazarus. Maybe he was at the party, but it would be impolite in the middle of a good party when the food was hot and the drinks were cold and all those stories were being told and retold. You wouldn't want to talk too early about the end of the night. And maybe he looked around at all this good company and he started to say something. He started to speak and he thought, no, not yet. He played along. He talked of all the tomorrows that he might not see. He loved and laughed like all of this would always just be. Death was this secret that all the humans have agreed to keep. And keeping it kept them. And so he spends what's left 
living his life between these two sisters, the one who just couldn't stop moving and fixing and cleaning and arranging, and this other sister who just couldn't stop praying and hoping and pleading until all that was left to do for all of them was just to stop. And when he's gone, all this quietness that they had kept becomes weeps and wails. They weep and they yell at Jesus, if you had been here, he would still be here. And maybe they're also just saying, if you had been here, you would have been here. Their brother, though, even in the darkness, he had kept one last hand close. And he had one last family secret. Because he is the first human to know the secret of Easter. That the sound of your name on the right lips can turn all the lights back on. In the, the stories that we have of Jesus experiencing witness with his, his best friends, we often see glimpses of ourselves. And uh, every year at Easter, I pick one story to focus on. And for some reason this year, I keep leaning towards Simon Peter. And I want us to think about that last week of Jesus' life because everybody was mad at him. We got all this candy and bunnies and stuff, but it was a week of anger. Everybody was mad at him, even his friends. There are these crowds who are in the shadows who are trying to kill him. His best friends are getting more and more confused about what he's saying because he's talking about leaving them. He's talking about maybe dying. He's talking about all these things they don't understand. And they want him to talk about power grabbing and ruling someday. And Simon Peter especially is this guy who is just so amped up and on the edge of all his nerves all the time. And he's especially mad this week. One of the things that makes him mad is that Jesus wants to wash his feet. On Thursday night, right, Jesus sits with his friends and he washes their feet. And Simon Peter thinks, this is not what a king does. This is not what a savior does. This is not what power looks like. And one night, when they come to arrest Jesus, Simon Peter gets so worked up. He's the one, he takes one of the swords and he cuts off a guy's ear. There's violence in the Easter story. But if we sit with it, maybe we might feel our own clenched fist and our tightened shoulders and the mad swings we want to take at the world. Simon Peter, if his body was a race, his hands would always be faster than his mind. His mouth would be faster than his mind. And his life was this race between the man that he was and the man that he wanted to be. And his worst self always got to the finish line first. So at the end of this long night, at the end of this long week, at the end of a long year, his hands at the end of his long arms are racing. His nerves are coming around the last of all their curves. All the voices are turned up. 
the voice of the one that he's followed all this time telling him he would someday leave, the voices of his enemies telling them that he would never be king, the voice that sounded like his own telling him he would never be who he wanted to be. It's all sound and fury. It's just pure cacophony. And then all of a sudden, there's this pressure in his throat. Maybe you know it. It's like you're being held by a beast. And his hands reach out for something to steady him, but instead he ends up taking a swing. Like he could just cut through all this noise and stop everything that shouldn't be. I will take this chaos by force, he thinks. And he's suddenly thirsty. And he thinks he can hear somebody scream. But then he recalls for just a moment that in this world of mud and dirt and cuts that bleed, there is a reason that the soles of his feet have been made clean. us to to sit with the stories of humans burying each other and remembering each other and making and keeping and breaking promises to each other of holding on together because I think that when we see the breadth of the human experience all these moments we have of frailty and fatigue all these moments when we really consider them I want us to see that God was with all these humans God is a player in every single one of these stories And that this world, this wild world, is the one that God wants to know up close. That God takes witness so seriously that in those last moments, in the last days of Jesus' life, think about it, he is let down by his friends. He, He prays for something to be different than it is. He weeps, he bleeds, he thirsts. He tries to take care of the people that he loves. And at least one thing that is happening on the cross is that all of what it means to be a person falls on him and is buried with him. On the cross, maybe he thought of the shame and the grief of Eve. Maybe he thought of the disillusionment and the drunkenness of Noah. Maybe he thought of Jacobed trusting the river to hold her son or the striving of Ruth. Maybe he thought of his friend Lazarus on this up and down roller coaster of life and death and life and death. Maybe he thought of the anger of his good friend, Simon Peter. He feels the weariness of all human bodies and he takes onto himself every violent thing that we do to each other and everything that's been done since Cain first slayed his brother Abel. All those things, they go to the grave with him. And when he walks out of that tomb, when he folds those grave clothes, and when he walks around in a body that has buried it all and carried it all, he is showing us that there is always more than we can see to what it means to be human. None of us are mere mortals as Mr. Lewis says. 
let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness. God said, we're only human, we said. You are only human, God says, and I am with you. 